From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and I'm the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. During these winter months, we're casting our interview net a bit wider, still talking to women farmers and also other women playing a variety of roles in organic food and farming, from agency women, authors and activists to entrepreneurs. Typically, you'll hear a series of interviews with the same woman over two months, with a new episode released every other Friday through the winter. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Today, we welcome Allie Burlow as she shares the story of her journey to be the multifaceted food entrepreneur, educator, and organizer she is today. From her roots in Wisconsin, growing up under the Aldo Leopold conservation ethic, to her home today on Martha's Vineyard. Hear her experiences convening and bringing her own community together around the potluck table, and the collaboration and success that can result, and how writing the book you personally need can be a big motivator. Allie Burlow is a writer, host of the weekly Local Food Report produced by Atlantic Public Media, co-publisher of Edible Vineyard, and author of the Food Activist's Handbook and the Mobile Poultry Slaughterhouse. So we are here today with Allie Burlow. Thank you for stopping by in our great state of Wisconsin, where I know you have roots. Yeah. But you have just such an inspiring story of all these different things that you do to change our food system and I'd love to hear your story because it is so inspiring how we all end up here from different ways right but did you I don't even know did you you grow up on a family farm or well I grew up in Madison Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't grow up on a farm although we have um, land out by New Glarus and that's where really my family has settled down in the roots Uh, so I think the land ethic really of um even going back to Aldo Leopold sure. was really oh, yeah. something that was instilled in me. In your family. In my family and my father in particular. So but you, you grew up here mm-hmm. and then went to school here too? Or what? Yeah, yeah. My, um, I grew up in right in the shadow of uh, the University of Wisconsin Stadium. Oh, <laughs> so football games are a big deal for us. <laughs> uh, and uh, went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison and studied uh, anthropology and African history. Oh, wow. And after college, I, at that point, was pretty proficient, ironically, in, I don't know if it's ironic, but in Swahili. And so I spent a lot of time in East Africa working there for an archaeologist. And then it, it kind of a, there was a point, I guess, uh, I had a, one of those aha moments of saying, you know, it's time for me to go back to the States and see what I can do back home um, as opposed to far away. And um, my husband's also from Madison, Wisconsin, Sam Burlow. And we got married in 1990 and settled on the East Coast in Massachusetts. Had three kids. And um, at that point, I started, when my kids were young, I started working, writing about food. Okay. Um, really kind of an essay program for a local NPR station, WCAI, 
is my home station. And around um, when Michael Pollan's book came out Mm -hmm. in, I want to say, 2007? I have to check that date. Anyway, Omnivore's Dilemma came out. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those books that were for so many people. It was revelatory re, uh, yeah. <laughs> to me. Uh, because I'd been writing about food, but that was the first uh, book, I think, in popular journalism, basically, that pulled away the veil. And at that point, having written about food and kind of how people and food and culture and history mix, um, seeing what, what Michael did... And then really looking at our own community, looking very locally and saying, wow, that book was really enlightening, but what are we going to do about it? You know, there was that point of kind of hopelessness in a way that, you know, like good journalism can take you to. But then what the next step is, you can't sit there. Um, and put your, you know, head in the oven with the kale chips. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, it's tempting sometimes. Oh, it's tempting. Yes, yes. You know, you have to do something. Yeah. And so I came at food system work really as an eater okay um because my kids were young and I was feeding my kids and I was writing about food and then you know like so many people again like I think that that book uh influenced maybe it's even become a cliche but I don't care it's important hey it Um, spurred a lot of good work happening yeah it's interesting too because your anthropology background yeah must have cross-pollinated at that time too of our culture and I think it did you where know? we are yeah where we should go <laughs> where well and it, it what it did and, and now looking back so that was in uh, 2007 or so we started um a group that we didn't know would become a non-profit but it's called Island Grown Initiative because you're out on Martha's, Martha's Vineyard, Vineyard. Lovely. yeah yeah and uh that really I described it as a group of eaters supporting fishermen and farmers for the because they're the ones growing the food catching the food processing the food that we wanted we quote eaters wanted to eat so or be able to at least have access to right um so i gathered r- literally around my dining room table i had a huge potluck huge being about 30 35 people that brings people together it does right and um i kind of, i i describe it as throwing kind of darts at our food web you know and so i had people from food bank cookbook authors grocers shell fishermen uh, farmers, of course, um, clergy, you know, different, just a swath of people from our communities. And, and it was a, it was, um, uh, an agendaed meeting, you know, and I did it with my friend, John Ash, who's a cookbook author out of California. And our question was, what does sustainability mean to us as a group, as a community? And more, moreover, what are we going to do about it? Uh Um, and that was really an exciting time, and an ex- there was a lot of energy, and people really did. They wanted to help do, you know, they wanted to do something, uh, but we didn't quite even know what that meant. So mm-hmm. we went to the farmers and said, what do you need? And, and this is looking at your community. Very locally, yeah. very, very locally. And Martha's Vineyard is about 150 miles square, um, and there's agricultural farms, shellfish farms, horse farms and they have a they have a lot of land conservation um but yet there was still this you know uh i think there's a self-sufficiency no matter where you go in rural communities but i think the island has you know that's almost predetermined Mm -hmm. because there's no bridge um so it was it was a good question to ask and people were very motivated to to do something yeah but you were the convener that brought it together i i find that so inspiring because on one level, it was a potluck, right? I mean, it was exactly. just bringing people together around the table, but in the right forum and with, like you said, an agenda, but not a 
program, I mean, or a goal necessarily, just a facilitation, it sounds like. Exactly. I mean, you know, I'd, none of us had the, you know, quote, the answers. And we didn't, it started truly as a grassroots effort. We didn't, you know, we didn't go get funding for a project that we wanted to do. We just looked around the table and said, what do we want to do? And literally had a whiteboard and people shout out, shouted out ideas. And two of the ideas... And you that, do that over good food. Over <laughs> Maybe good a little food. wine, too. That yeah. Always. yeah. But, you know, and I think it had helped that there wasn't... Nobody was saying, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. You know, it was really a collective effort, and everybody was heard, and everybody was listened to, and it was... There was just energy to, to do something. And, it, and I think because there were farmers and shellfish farmers and people that weren't... Are not in that, in that sector, and they saw that there was this desire to be, you know, basically activists to support their work, which was really energizing. Um, and two things that came from that was we, we created a farm map, literally a food farm map, to just show partly an agritourism in that sense, but also to show, like, the community how many food farms and shellfish farms we had. And then another group wanted to create a um, slow food convivium, mm. and so they went off and did that. And from the the map is where Island Grown Initiatives, you know, we did that map, we got it together, we got help from local graphic designers and got it out for free to the public. And then we said, okay, that was great. Now what? You know, yeah. and, and that's kind of how the next things happen. But I love that story because I think that's too a role that we women especially play well of bringing people together. And it's so easy, I know myself and we all, get in this mode of, you got to have it all figured out, do you know, or what's your plan, or what's your goal, or what's your this, and you take things continually to the next step, and it keeps flowing from there, but it's on that good energy flow, versus trying to make something happen. Right, and I think it was a lot, again, in retrospect, now I have, you know, um, 15, almost 20, whatever it is, years, um, 10 to 15 years uh, in perspective, to say, I think it was a I'm not going to tell you what we knew what we were doing, (laughs) but I am going to say that we all looked around at our community and there was mutual respect. Mm -hmm. There was, um, you know, again, the desire to do something, but it was very much like, how can we help each other? And I think that that made it um, earnest and sincere, and that's what made it work. Awesome. So you have you're still involved with that non that nonprofit still going and the nonprofit's <laughs> still going. Yeah. So it turned into a nonprofit again. We didn't even know what we were when we started, um, but after talking to the farmers, uh, we picked up some issues that we that we found that were important to them, local access to local humane slaughter in particular, and um, also we started a farm to school program, and then we then you know we became a nonprofit, and now the nonprofit is in its third executive director. I was the first one, and now they're and they're just doing fabulous work oh that's awesome yeah it's pretty cool so that's one of your hats yeah and then you still have the writer hat and that evolved to books along the way right right from radio i went into um more print magazines and things like that and uh took a hiatus from radio to do island grown initiative retired from that when i had some book ideas and contracts to do so that's how the mobile poultry slaughterhouse book came forth and then, consequently, the Food Activist Handbook. And in the meantime, my husband and I started Edible Vineyard Magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah. All so, at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like writing a book, books, 
and uh, publishing right. a magazine. Well, and you know that, so I, I do know. I say yeah. that with a with a kindred spirited voice of crazy. Right. But you got to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. And when you you know, there's a great support from my publisher, Story Publishing, and um, Temple Grandin wrote the foreword to my first book, which was a huge honor, of course. And oh yeah, 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 yeah. So. Both the books are a big passion of mine, and they're also very practical books. You know, they're not... But they're very different. They're very different. <laughs> right. We, so the yeah. Food Activist Handbook is designed... Who's Who do you see your audience for that? I really wanted that to be... It's like you. You're the... Yeah. You'll be writing for you. I, wanted, no, I mean, you want the book you wanted yourself, whatever, when 15 I, years ago, right? Exactly. I want, that's exactly who I wrote it for, was, was like my prior self, and to say, okay... I don't know what this world means. I don't come from food systems work. I mean, I'm 52 years old. I didn't study this, like I said, in college, like so many people now have an opportunity to do. Um, it just really came out of a, what, what's going on and how can we make it better? Um, so yeah, I really, in a food activist handbook, I really want to take kind of a 360 degree look at food systems and to, to, to help people know that you don't have to be a quote expert in it. You don't have to be a farmer. You don't have to be a chef. You don't have to be a fisherman. You can help your change your food system for the better, no matter what your skills are, no matter what your passion is. And that's really, you know, so from arts and legal and environmental and, you know, economics and policy, like whatever your angle is, design. We couldn't have done a lot of what we did without good design. Um, so that's what I really wanted to, to that's who I was talking to. And I love the, the message of the book too it's like everybody's a food activist this isn't a title you earn necessarily you do it because we eat right right, right. exactly exactly uh, and so so which book came first the food activist one or the the mobile poultry the slaughterhouse mobile... and what, uh-huh. what prompted that just again the need yeah you know um and we can talk about mobile poultry slaughter and we can also cut this anyway however you want to but the um when we went with Island Grown Initiative and we talked to farmers, one of the things that they said was, of course, access to slaughter. And that's not unique to Martha's Vineyard, although it's an island. That's, you know, we're all islands in rural America. And with the consolidation of our meat industry, not having access to small-scale slaughterhouses or humane slaughters, you know, it's a big issue for both four-legged and poultry. Um, so we chose the poultry route. We, when I say that, as Island Grown Initiative, as the... Um, as a barrier to, to start to work to diminish for our local farmers because of the regulations of state regulated. We weren't engaging the, the USDA, the federal system of which all four-legged slaughter has to go through. So that was one reason we chose poultry. The other reason was if that if we had made a mistake, if we had messed up, you know, of course it would have been a disaster, but it would have been an, a 10-week disaster, so to speak, for a farmer as opposed to a two-year disaster. Yeah, or, you know, pragmatic. Yeah. That was very yeah, pragmatic. Yeah. The other thing is that I had seen different poultry, um, mobile slaughter programs around the country. And I felt like um, frequently they were I would, what I would describe as photo ops. You know, they get a beautiful, slick, incredibly expensive, gorgeous interior design, you know, mobile slaughter facility. If you go online, you can see some of these things are quite large, especially for the four-legged, for good reason. But there wasn't, a, I, I always felt that there was a photo op in the sense that maybe the community uh, being that and the regulators and the eaters weren't necessarily, and the farmers weren't necessarily ready to engage it and to use it. So our strategy was, as I said, poultry um, and also a huge education piece uh, for, again, eaters, because that was my perspective. You yeah. know, if you're going to have a local chicken, we all know it's going to be more expensive. 
for the homemaker. We also know that it's probably going to have bones in it. You have to realize that culinary people, skills, culinary <laughs> skills, right? And also, people, um, no matter what, there's a not in my backyard uh, philosophy about um, a, a kind of knee jerk reaction. Yeah. And the other thing is that we found is that the regulatory agents we, in our state of Massachusetts, we have to engage the Department of Public Health, Department of Agricultural Resources, and the Department of Environmental Protection. Those are the three key agencies mm-hmm. that regulate poultry slaughter. Um, there, you know, just as eaters have, uh, consumers have lost kind of a, a, a connection to food over time, our regulators have as well in many ways because yeah. we haven't had local slaughterhouses. Whereas, you know, you talk to your grandparents or great-grandparents, they'll say, oh, well, there used to be one in every town. Sure. You, you know, um, so it used to be part of the regulatory system in a very accessible way. Mm-hmm. So we've lost that, I think, common knowledge. And the, to have compassion for that situation, because it is mandated that yeah. they regulate slaughter, the same time as we have become more distant in our food system and people are shopping for boneless, skinless chicken breasts and things like that, there's a disassociation of the food, of the animal, and also of the process. But when you decided to write this book, you I mean, you're, you're not a chicken farmer, right? I mean, this was all no, new right. research that it, needed to be done. Yeah, and it was, wow. this was what, what, you know, I, my backstory is, and I write about this in both of the books, is that as a local food activist or part of the good food movement, however you want to couch it, um, I participated in, in a very naive way of raising two pigs um, and taking them to slaughter, slaughtering them on our own and having food for our freezer, for our family. It wasn't meat that was going to enter the marketplace. And we were a group of people that were not farmers, but we had a a farming person to help us through this process. And um, it was a very traumatic experience. And, you know, the the animals, I'm loathe to say it, the animals suffered, and I know that the humans, me and myself included, suffered. It was a very ill-conceived plan. And that was a turning point for me saying, wow, you know, farming, first of all, <laughs> let, you know, that's why, we're, like, a reminder, farmers, like, let's support the farmers that are doing it, right? Uh-huh. Let's also create a workforce that is safe in the slaughter process. Um, so, you know, we hear about and we've read about slaughterhouse conditions that are horrific for people. Um, but let's create a workforce that's specifically trained, that that's what they come to the farm to do, and that they, in fact, are safe. Mm-hmm. And that the, the, this ill-conceived idea that everybody should be able to kill their own animal and eat it or look it in the eye is not for everybody. True. <laughs> Fair enough, said the former vegetarian. Yeah, 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 I get that. Yeah, and it's also not for, you know, I also, I, I share my story still that in, so in that, in that slaughter, which was a pivotal moment for me, I said to myself, not on my watch, you know, no more of this ill-humane treatment in the idea of, quote, local food. And that started, of course, on the journey, as well as the farmer's need for access to slaughter. So there was a personal issue, there was a professional and uh, uh, meeting the community where they were at. So when we decided to start the mobile slaughter um, program, I got some angel donors, got about 20000 to $25,000, which is not a lot for a mobile slaughter unit. And the way I describe this unit is kind of a, um, all, the, all the components that required for a poultry slaughter are independent of each other, and they're put onto a trailer 
taken to a farm and then taken off and designed uh, and set up on a farm under tents. So it, it is it is not that traditional looking mobile slaughter unit you see uh, online okay. that's enclosed. Everything's outside, but it's under tents, right. and everything's independent of each other, and the cost of it's much less. Ah, right. So it's like the it's like the micro mobile slaughter unit. It's yeah. the first step because and and, and I, I I need to say that in our community, we only had maybe maybe two hundred birds a year being raised by our farmers. We had 25 farms, but nobody was raising chickens because access to the slaughterhouses was prohibitive. Yeah. So you can't build an expensive mobile slaughter unit and not have the farmers ready to use it, right? That's going to sit there and go to waste. And you can't also start slaughtering chickens, at a, which will be a higher price, and not have the community ready to sure, buy them. Sure, there's a lot of moving parts and there. And you huh? can't have the regulators assuming that, they know, that they're going to be happy with what you're doing because mobile slaughter makes everybody... Slaughter makes everybody uncomfortable, and mobile slaughter in particular is outside of the regu- regulatory yeah. norm. So your resource helps folks navigate this and get ideas for the startup. The book, that's what they... Ways. Yeah, because that's it's great, really yeah. the story of what we did, and we went from zero basically zero chickens available into the market you know 200 chickens to 10,000 chickens a wow. year after 3 or 4 years it yeah, was yeah, a, it yeah. was a step i mean and i always tell people it is not something to happen quickly and you know i take it very seriously i mean um, both the humane handling of the animal and the making the change within the regulatory system that's yeah. very much what my perspective is not i didn't want to contribute to an underground meat market yeah, I, yeah, that doesn't. That's not a sustainable solution, right? And right. it's not a safe solution. So if we're going to create an economic opportunity for farmers to be able to, with you know, however they want to raise their chickens, it was up to them. But to be able to create um, a permitted situation that they could enter the marketplace however they wanted to, whether it was from their farm stand, farmers markets. And um, or selling to schools or selling to restaurants, that was up to them. But that we would do, we again, the nonprofit would do the work to work with the regulators, hold the permit because permits cost, sure. know, you know, money. And then we created basically an umbrella permit for different farmers that qualified, following our procedures, wow. that could do it. And then the whole idea of this is size-appropriate technology, mm-hmm. right? Kind of an E.F. Schumacher model of start small. And build with the community. So the whole idea, and which is what's happening now, is that some farmers have graduated, so to speak, into their own slaughter facility mm-hmm. on their property, which is, and now they're slaughtering 300 chickens a week. But that was how we met the community where we were at with a small investment and built up the re- relationships with the regulators, with the consumers, with the markets. And now we have farmers that are off on their own and poultry is a major piece of what they're doing. That's great. And so you also have other, well, probably multiple other hats, but the radio work you're doing yeah. now. What, tell me about that. So as I wrote um, Food Activist Handbook, um, and like I said, part of that was my experience of Island Grown Initiative, but also writing to my younger self of, uh, of the book that I wish I had had, um, I came across, I traveled outside of my um, comfort zone both geographically as well as into uh, speaking with groups and people that work that I've never done. Um, uh, so I was in El Paso and D.C. and Oregon and different places uh, outside of Massachusetts and Wisconsin. And 
I came across great stories of resiliency and response. Uh, the book is a practical book. The book is a how-to. Yeah. So ultimately, I've always been a food writer, and I, I hope a storyteller. Um, and I wanted to go back after uh, Food Activist Handbook was printed, and I did the whole book tour thing, which was fabulous and wonderful. There were all these stories to tell. And I had changed as a food writer, so I wanted to use my food systems lens in a, to tell uh, these stories of resiliency and sustainability in the vernacular through radio because it's such a great medium. So you're producing stories for your local public radio? Currently, yeah. yeah, so I went full circle back to WCAI. Um, I, I was invited back to co-host what's called the Local Food Report, which was started by my colleague and friend Elspeth Hay. And uh, so I am doing that now. We split basically the year. And I'm, it's the south coast of Massachusetts, and it's Nantucket, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard. And it's terrific because it's, again, it's not, you know, when you're on radio in the public public radio realm, you do, you know, you want to be able to catch people. They say those driveway moments. You know, yeah. You sit in the car and, you know, catch somebody and say, oh, my God, I never thought about having a community school lunch as a way to start a food, you know, farm to school program. Or I never thought about uh, what an ethnic crop is, you know, or in, in our community, we have a lot of Brazilian folks that are growing different Brazilian crops. But wow. also using these stories with, again, within the vernacular that mm-hmm. is not wonky. It's not, it's not the food. If I ever said the word food, food system on the radio, my editor would be like, what? You can't do that? <laughs> You know, it what are you talking normal, about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, let's talk to people that have not, that are that are not there. You know what I mean? But that, that are still eating, still eating, and that there's still, like, let's catch that. You know that this inclusivity is incredibly important to me, and access of information, access to food. Like, this is, we're all in this together, and that's just how we got to roll. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Allie. Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, In Her Boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.